0: For that. So for this, the beginning of this, we're just going to do a brief, brief overview of the rules of discernment up until Rule 11. We got through last time, as we might remember, we got through Rule... Yes, so we, we did Rule 10. We got to, we got up to Rule 10, and then we're going to start at Rule 11. And then from there, we will move from Rule 11 to the implication of the, the, impl- the implementation of the rules, as well as the part that everybody's been waiting for how do you use these rules to make a good, practical decision? So, let's begin. First rule and second rule, as we know, are rules of directionality. If you're heading toward the evil spirit, if you're heading toward hell, this, the, the, the evil spirit will encourage you. The good spirit will discourage you. If you're headed toward heaven, the good spirit will encourage you, the evil spirit will will discourage you. Very, very simple. We have the third and fourth rule. These are the defining moments that very clearly explain exactly what we're talking about whenever we say consolation and desolation. Consolation being our hearts being filled with fire, excitement of of, of spiritual joy, love for God and God alone, not a love of creation or anything else, and every increase of hope, faith, and charity. So you are in consolation wherever you are growing in hope, faith, hope and charity. Fourth rule: rule of desolation. All right, this is the one where we feel sad, tepid, lazy, sad, moving toward one of confidence, without hope, without love, and a movement toward low and earthly things. Low and earthly things things that are not that don't bring us any joy. Those these, these first four rules are the basic foundation and basically just explanation. They're not necessarily rules so much as they are simply explanations and, and, and assumptions, if you will, of the spiritual life. And it's not that these are necessarily actionable, but these things that help us can are just are what helps us to first be able to even discern spirits. And so that if you want the true discernment of spirits, just look at these first four rules. The fifth rule, all the way up to the fourteenth rule or actions. What do you do? And namely, for the most part, the fifth to 14th rule is what do you do in a time of desolation? And what do you do about desolation to avoid it and kind of not allow it to overpower you? And so we have our fifth rule. Our fifth rule tells us exactly what not to do. Rule number five. What is rule number five? Never make a change. That's what I'm talking about. Never make a change, all right? Never make a change, especially for your prior proposals. So if in consolation you say, I'm going to make a holy hour after this, after this mission, which I intend to do, and I'm telling you this for my own accountability, I will not make that change whenever I get tired and I want to go to bed. All right? I'm going to go do the holy hour, for instance. All right? Stay rooted to your initial proposal. So in a time of desolation, never, ever make a change. The sixth rule is what you can do. In a time of desolation, orient yourself against the, against the desolation. It's like taking a hit. It's, it's leaning into the hit and just taking it. And eventually it might hurt. Yes, will it will be difficult. But it's better than, than not leaning into the hit and getting knocked down. It's better than, 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 than just getting wrecked in that way. You need to lean into it. You need to take it and then it'll ultimately be to our, all of our benefits, is if, is, if we help to intrinsically take, change ourselves against the desolation. That's the words that Ignatius, Ignatius uses. And he says that, that the way to do that is through prayer, that is petition, meditation, that is considering and thinking about the love that God has for us. That is, by examination, what got us into this desolation in the first place, And in some, doing a suitable penance. The example I used last time is if you're in a holy hour and you don't feel like like finishing, you've got a thousand other things to do, anything else to do, make that holy hour longer. Add at least five minutes to that holy hour just to really put the dagger in in the heart of the devil in that one. So penance, do something brutal and sometimes nothing is more brutal than making a holy hour a little bit longer. The seventh rule is what to think. So, fifth rule is what not to do. Sixth rule is what to do. Seventh rule is how you think. And he says, "Those who are in, in desolation consider how the Lord left him in this tri- in, in trial and in with his natural powers in order to resist the different agitations and temptations of the enemy." This is this is the recognition. Like, look. This is my time to step up. This is my time to take some licks. This is my time to defeat the enemy. This is where the Lord is giving me a chance to rise up and be strong and brave. And so that's that's the the, the seventh rule is to stay positive, stay optimistic. Don't let the enemy discourage you. Don't let the enemy discourage you. Don't let him drag you down because if you're doing that, he's winning. And nobody has time to let the enemy win. The eighth rule is if you're in desolation, be patient. Be patient, be patient, be patient. Remember, I used the example of the Navy SEAL who was going through buds, and what did he do? He said, you know what, I'm just going to quit later. I'm going to quit later. I'm going to quit later. It's the same thing in desolation. You know, you might want to abandon your plan to do this, your plan to do this. Just quit later. Don't quit right now. Just be patient. Maybe you do need to quit. But, but, but in a time of desolation, it's not a time to make making changes. It's just not a time to, to be doing that, because ultimately what happens is we make changes that we regret. So don't make a change. Be patient and go against these vexations. That's the thing about desolation. Is desolation tends to make us want to push us into things. Push us in, push us in. I remember in my own story, um, I was discerning the priesthood, and I, I remember going to, to uh, my spiritual director, and he said, what the devil's always going to try and do is push us push us into seminary, push us into that. So then whenever you arrive to seminary, you're just like, what the heck did I do? Why did I make this decision and question that? You want your decision to be based off of peace, not of, off of desolation. So you want to think about this a lot more and make it in consolation. Another way to phrase it, and one that I've, I often had to say whenever I was on my 30-day silent retreat, was that the, the devil drives, but the Lord leads. The Lord's going to invite you in, hey, come here, come this way, come this way. It's going to be peaceful, it's going to be gentle, it's going to be simple. But Satan is going to be like that guy just whipping you. Hey, you've got to go here, you've got to do this, you've got to do this. He's going to make things, he's going to make imperatives out of things that aren't actually imperative. He's going to make a big deal out of things that are not actually a big deal. And we, I think we all see this all the time, especially whenever it comes to recreation. Oh, I need to do this. I need to do that. I need to do this. And eventually, what ends up happening is people find themselves in, in very dark places. We find ourselves in dark places because we think, we believe in the lies that we need to satisfy our bodily desires. In all reality, it's that, that might not be true. If It all depends. So that's the eighth rule, is be patient. Ninth rule, there are three principal reasons why we find ourselves desolate one is because of our laziness. The second one is, is to see how much we are and how much we let ourselves out in his service and praise without such great pay of consolation. So basically to, so to, to learn that how, much, how we are doing this without a need for reward. And the third is to recognize our dependence upon the Lord. So the fruits of that, the first one, the fruits is Conversion. To grow deeper in our relationship with God. The second second experience, the fruit is learning. Learning from our desolation, learning from our experiences. And the third, the fruit from that is humility. Humility. Recognizing that consolation can't be earned. It's merely a gift. It simply comes about whenever we put ourselves in a place where we can be found. So the tenth rule is let him who is in consolation think how he will be in desolation which will come after taking new strength for them. Let them, him who is in consolation, think how we would be in desolation, which will come after taking new strength for them. Remember I used the example of the ghillie suit and how we used to, we used to find vulnerable spots around the house and hide. Or, you, or the other example is the trolley car. And if you're not thinking ahead and you're just walking by the corner of the house, your weak point, you can easily get scared by, by me or my brother. All right, versus if you recognize, oh, this corner, there could, be, there could probably be somebody hiding behind this corner. The devil could probably be hiding behind this corner. So this is usually an opportunity where I'm weak, where I'm vulnerable. I'm going to go around. It. I'm, gonna, I'm, gonna, I'm not going to allow this, this to beat me. It's the same thing with the trolley car. We see a turn, grab a hold, and then everything's fine. Versus if you don't see the turn and you're just happy that you're on the trolley car and just talking to people, don't see the turn crash into the wall the rest of the day, can be ruined. It can be very difficult to recover from that. So that's just a basic review of the first ten rules. So let's begin on the rest of the rules. The eleventh rule. Let him who is consoled see to humbling himself and lowering himself as much as he can, thinking how little he is able for in the time of desolation without such grace or consolation, on the contrary let him who is in desolation think that he can do much with great sufficiency with great worth grace sufficient to resist all his enemies taking strength in his creator and lord let him who is in desolation think that he can do much with the grace sufficient to resist all his enemies taking strength in his creator and lord one of my great one of the things that I love doing, love, is directing silent retreat directees. So like, if anybody going on a silent retreat. One of my favorite lessons, especially to, to people who come on silent retreat, who are just like, yeah, you know, I'm just here. I mean, you know, I don't really have any big major issues. I'm pretty good, you know. So, yeah, I mean, I don't know what you're going to tell me. But, well, to be honest, you have a lot of work to do. And I'm like, what are you talking about? And he goes, well, you need to start thanking the Lord for that. You need to be on your knees thanking the Lord for the fact that you don't have these issues. Now, most of them actually do kind of have the issues, but I don't, I don't, that's not the game. I, I don't point that out just yet. I usually let them kind of figure that out on their own. But, but, this, but the beginning is always like, look, if you're good, then you have that much more to pray about. You're in, you're in, if you will, consolation. If you're in consolation, that means your prayer is all about thanking the Lord for bringing you here because you couldn't have done it yourself. Thanking the Lord for giving you this grace, because on your own, you would have fallen apart. You'd have been in desolation. And so it's all about recognizing, recognizing that, look, the Lord is, is the giver here. It's all God, especially in times of consolation. But in times of desolation, that, whenever you're, whenever you're letting the, the demons beat you down, that's whenever you have to say, no, God put me here because he knew I would be strong enough to overcome this. Remember, despair is a sin. Despair is a sin. And if you're in desolation and you're thinking, oh, you know, I, I'm, I'm not worthy of this. God doesn't want me here. I can't get over this. You're despairing. That's not true. God puts you in desolation because he knows that you can overcome it. He wants you to learn. He wants you to convert. He wants you to grow in humility. One of the, some of those things. And so it's a matter of recognizing and put ourselves in the proper mindset to continue to press forward. It's a, it's, a, it's a proper attitude. This, this, kind of, this rule is very similar to the seventh rule. is just recognize that God is still giving you grace and desolation, but it's just grace to grow. It's grace to grow. And you can't grow without suffering. That's rule 11. Rule number 12. My favorite. This is going to get me killed. All right. The enemy acts like a woman in being weak against vigor and strong of will, because as it is the way of the woman when she is quarreling with some man to lose heart, taking flight when the man shows her much courage, and on the contrary, if the man losing heart begins to fly, the wrath, revenge, and ferocity of the woman is very great, and so without bounds." In the same manner, it is the way of the enemy to weaken and lose heart. His temptations taking flight when the person who is exercising himself in spiritual things opposes a bold affront against the temptations of the enemy. Doing diametrically the opposite. And on the contrary, if the person who is exercising himself commences to have fear and lose heart in suffering the temptations... There is no wild beast, there is no beast so wild on the face of the earth as the enemy of human nature in following out his damnable intention with so great malice. You give him an inch, he will take a mile. Now, let's talk about the metaphor, shall we? (laughs) The enemy acts like a woman. So last time I gave this, this, this mission, I just straight up didn't even read Rule 12. I just avoided it altogether because I was like, look, it's politically incorrect. We're just not even going to talk about it. But this time I was challenged by a student to talk about this. So here you go. If you all get offended, it's her fault. All right. So the person who, who is the expert of the discernment of spirits, Father Timothy Gallagher, I mean, the man is... Out of this world, saintly. I mean, he is... He's and But not only is he saintly, he's so humble and soft-spoken and gentle. I don't want to say he's non-confrontational, but he's pretty non-confrontational. So I did, for once, the wise thing and went and looked and see what he had to say about this rule. Because it's not exactly the most flattering rule. For women, especially. And he says that, that this example, Rule 11... Rule 12, excuse me, this is Rule 12. So, Rule 12, Rule 13, and Rule 14 are all unnatural situations. They're all bad, unnatural situations. They're all bad situations. All right? So, Rule 12 is about a man and a woman fighting. Rule 13 is about a man seducing a woman. And Rule 14 is is about an, a, a basically an eve a leader of of robbers or a leader of bandits or a leader of an army attacking a city. None of these are good things. These are not exactly things that we preach about in the in the Catholic Church. It's not something that we make a big deal of. We do not, not that we we actually preach against it. Man and woman is to complement one another. They are work to work together. You are not to if a man is a man is not to yell at a woman or race's voice like this. This is not encouraged in any way, shape, or form. And so the point that, that Father Timothy Gallagher makes is that we the only way to understand this is to see it in the lens of an unnatural situation. But he also concedes, which I will as well, that a metaphor is only as valuable as those as it is as it is in communicating the message to the receiver. As communicating the message to the receiver. And so perhaps there are better metaphors for the company that we have here present. And I I have to agree with them. There are better metaphors. The first metaphor that Father Gallagher uses is the metaphor of a whiny child. If you have a whiny child, let's just say, oh, I don't know. I'll pull a random example. If you're at the Dollar Tree, your child is eight years old and he sees... A, you ever knew those like three foot long gums that like, you like roll out and they're just, oh. anyway, just random example. Nobody that I know ever actually wanted these things. So you, you see this, this giant gum and or this child sees this giant gum and goes to mom and says, hey mom, can I have this? Well, you and I all know if that poor mother or father, either way, it could go, it could go, there's, there's, it's, it's interchangeable here. Poor mother or father says, well, I don't know, you know, it, it might ruin your your supper. What, I, please, come on, mom, why not? You know, like, what is it starting to start it starts just the avalanche, all right? Come on, I promise, I'll eat all my supper, I'll eat all my green beans, you can cook whatever you want. Like, you know, just like running his mouth, so before you know it. The child is starting to grow in confidence and grow in courage. Well, the child says, no, 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 not now. The child is not going to stop. He's already got his, his, his mind set on getting this, this delicious sweet treat. While he's standing in line in Dollar General. I always hated standing in line in the tree, in in the in the, in the, the store. It was like the worst like, there was like nothing like it was it was absolute hell on earth. Because you'd have to stand in line and you'd see like all the candy on either side that you weren't allowed to buy. I mean, anyway, I, that's neither here nor there. But but it's the same thing that, that that with a whiny child. Like you have a child who wants this and wants this and wants this. And so the point that Father Gallagher makes. Same point St. Ignatius makes, is that to properly handle this situation is to come out strong. No. No. You're not eating that. And you might sound like a jerk, but you will save the child and yourself a load of headache. Jordan Peterson makes a great point. Don't let your kids do anything that that displeases you. Because they're going to be upset, they're going to be upset. Everything's going to be bad. So just be very, very firm with them. Now you can. Th- this is not a class on child rearing, but this is this is a, I find a, a suitable example. If you treat Satan is like a whiny child, Saint Augustine calls him a barking dog that's chained up. Same thing with a barking dog. If you go up to a barking dog and you whisper, "Hey, be quiet," it's not going to respond. It might actually just bark louder. But if you like get very firm with the dog as I've had to do several several times with our dogs, they'd be quiet, at least for a little while. And so it's a a very similar thing with a child. You would be firm, they recognize, I'm not going to win this fight. I'm not going to win this battle, I'm going to drop it. Another rule that I find is just as effective, and, and actually I think is even a better metaphor than the whiny child rule, the whiny child metaphor, is the metaphor of the snowball. Now, this isn't the best metaphor because we're in South Louisiana and nobody really knows what a snowball is. Like, this is like, it's like kind of a foreign concept. But I've been to Maryland and I promise you this actually works. If, you are, if, you roll, if, you, if a snowball starts at the top of the hill and it's just this tiny little thing, it's very, very easy to stop. It's very, very simple. It's not, it's, you can stop with a mere finger. But if that snowball starts rolling down a hill... It's going to collect more and more and more snow. And it's going to collect more and more and more speed. And the further and further you allow that snowball to go down and down the hill, the bigger and and larger it's going to get, and the harder and harder it will be to stop to the point where you'll feel absolutely overwhelmed in stopping it. The devil is no different. If you give the devil a little bit, and his, his temptation is just going to continue to grow and grow and grow and grow. To the point where you, you have to act out in whatever it is that, you, that the devil is tempting you to do. He, is, he will have worn you down. Why? Because you and I didn't stay, say no at the very beginning. Absolutely not. I love this rule. I love this rule because it saves you and I a whole lot of trouble. Usually our temptations come about because we did not banish the devil as soon as it came up. Because we were not paying attention, we didn't realize that we were being tempted, and we let him run his mouth and we started listening. And listening and listening to the point where things just got out of hand. And you just, you could not control yourself. And so that's basically, that's rule 12. Another way that, another, basically, to put it simply, Father Gallagher says, a quick and firm response strips the deceptive temptation of all its power. A quick and firm response strips the deceptive temptation of all its power. A weak and hesitant response gives the temptation increasing power over the one tempted. A good example is from St. Francis of Assisi. This is what was written about him. The saint therefore made it a point to keep himself in joy of heart and to preserve the unction of the spirit and the unction and the oil of gladness. He avoided with the greatest care the miserable illness of dejection so that if he felt it creeping over his mind even a little he would have recourse very quickly to prayer for he would say if the servant of God may happen, as may happen, is disturbed in any way, he should rise immediately and pray, and he should remain in the presence of the Heavenly Father until he restores him, and excuse me, until he restores unto him the joy of salvation. He should remain in the presence of the Heavenly Father until he restores unto him the joy of salvation. Stop the devil early, and it will save you a load of headache. Rule 13. Likewise, he acts as a licentious lover in wanting to be secret and not revealed. For as the licentious man who is speaking for an evil purpose solicits a daughter of a good father or a wife of a good husband wants his words and persuasions to be secret, And the contrary displeases him much when the daughter reveals to her father or the wife of her husband his licentious words and depraved intentions because he easily gathers that he will not be able to succeed with the undertaking begun. In the same way, when the enemy of human nature brings his wiles and persuasions to the just soul, he wants and desires that they be received and kept in secret. But when one reveals to them one reveals them to his good confessor or to another spiritual person that knows his deceits and evil ends it is very grievous to him because he gathers from his manifest deceits being discovered that it will not that he will not be able to succeed with his wickedness begun This is the seducer rule The enemy loves silence and secret Because what do we know about the enemy? The enemy tries to bite and sadden and drag us down with what? False reasons. False reasons. And nothing disperses so quickly as a false reason being brought to light. As telling somebody something that you had in your head... Only to discover, wow, this is actually a very, very bad idea. This is actually not true. False reasons only work whenever they're kept secret, whenever they're kept quiet, and whenever we act on them without consulting anybody or telling anybody our exact thought process. I think too about uh, there's so many religions nowadays that operate on these secrets. And I mean the Masons are just one brief example that, that have been that have been condemned by the church, operating on this secret knowledge. This is something that's plagued the church from the beginning. It's not just the Masons, but in the early church it was the Gnostics. This idea that you could achieve salvation with special knowledge, this secret knowledge, and you know, you discover it, it's like there's nothing special to what they what they had in mind. There was no there was no real gem to what they were holding. It was just Mystery, And that's how the devil works. The devil works by keeping you quiet. And that's how desolation works too. How many of us want to go and tell somebody we're in desolation? How many of us want to go and share that we're struggling? How many of us want to be like, today is not my day? And quite frankly, that will only encourage and continue the process it will not help that. To keep it bottled up, generally speaking, does not help. That's kind of what the devil is looking for, because the devil is looking to seduce us. And seducers can only operate in secret. One of my favorite commentaries, or basically examples of this, is by G.K. Chesterton. He writes, a, he wrote this series called the Father Brown series. And this priest, was a Brilliant detective. He would go from case to case and he would just uncover all kinds of different things using his theological wit and wisdom. A very, very clever little, little detective series. Well, in one case, the priest was uncovering and revealing a family curse. And how that family curse was passed down from generation to generation. And it was born, and there was, apparently there was some uh, the curse was always on somebody's head. Like it was like it was like a deformation on the head of somebody. And basically this curse landed on this count who lived in you know the, some backwoods house. And in order for him to cover up the curse, it was he put on a purple wig. It was a very it was it's a very interesting story. It's something that, that it's just interesting. Well anyway, he would use this curse to manipulate people. And he would use, and he would say, like, you do, you, do not, you do not want to see what's under here. And he would start fabricating stories about, about what, people, what would happen to people whenever they would see what would happen whenever he took off his purple wig. Well, Father Brown was onto it. And what does he do? He confronts him. And he says, take off your wig. And the guy says, no, I will not take off my wig because you will be horrified. You could not worship. Excuse me, he said, you do not know what's under the altar of the unknown God. And the little priest said something, I love it. I know the unknown God, said the little priest with an unconscious grandeur of certitude that stood up like a granite tower. I know his name. It is Satan. The true God was made flesh and dwelt among us. And I say to you, wherever you find men ruled merely by mystery, it is the mystery of iniquity. If the devil tells you something is too fearful to look at, look at it. If he says something is too bearable, too terrible to hear, hear it. If you think some truth unbearable bear it. And lo and behold, of course, Father Brown, he, the man says no, Father Brown wrestles with him, takes off the wig from his head, and sure enough, it's nothing. It's like a little deformed ear. It was, it was a, a total hoax. A total fake. All right, But he was using that, that false reason to manipulate. It's no different with the devil. The devil's got nothing on us. But he, he, he tries to, in his secrecy, in his lies, in his, in his, in his tactics, seduce us. Another way to apply this rule is this. If you want to have a very fruitful spiritual direction or fruitful therapy or counseling or whatever, but namely spiritual direction, talk about the exact thing you don't want to talk about. Talk about the exact thing you don't want to talk about. Talk about the the secret that you're hiding. Talk about the thing that you you don't want anybody else to know. And and in that way, you can denounce those lies the devil is telling you. In that way, you can bring to light the false reasons that are are absolutely corrupting you. It's always a great relief to me as as a priest and as a spiritual director to hear somebody finally unburden themselves of a secret they've been holding on for a very, very long time. It kind of, in a, in a weird sense, it gives me joy whenever somebody says, I haven't told this to anybody. Not because like, I'm like, oh, wow, wow I'm special. Well, there's a little bit of that going on. I need help. I need prayers. But what brings me joy is like, oh, finally, this person is going to relieve themselves of a burden they've been carrying for a very long time. And the devil will be dispelled of this. And every time they say it, they always feel a lot better. Not to say you need to go tell your secrets to everyone. This is something to be shared with a spiritual director. At the end of the day, the enemy wants to keep sin a secret. He wants to keep sin a secret. So finally, the fourth rule. The the 14th, excuse me. The 14th. Likewise, he behaves as a chief, bent on conquering and robbing what he desires for. He desires. For as a captain and a chief of the army, pitching his camp and looking at the forces or defenses of a stronghold, attacks it on the weakest side. In like manner, the enemy of human nature roaming about looks in turn at all our virtues, theological, cardinal, and moral. And where he finds us weakest and most in need for our eternal salvation, there he attacks us and aims at taking us. Stay sober and alert, for the devil is prowling like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. First letter of Peter. So rule 14. Satan is a leader of a group of thieves. And basically, he's a military strategist. He's going to attack your weakest point. I don't know if you guys have seen it, but the movie, movie the, the Lord of the Rings movie, The Two Towers. You have this big, massive, amazing fortress. And how do they? How does the fortress ultimately fall by a little drain, a tiny little drain that was unguarded? They weren't even really aware that that was a problem. And because they did not guard it, and because they were not, they were not on their their peas and their cues, it got attacked, and it was ultimately the the the, the point, the place of weakness where it, where it fell. It's no different with us. We have places of deep vulnerability. We have places where we are weak, and these places usually we keep a secret. And rightly so. People don't need to know about our most vulnerable spots. The general public does not. But the Lord does need to know this. This is a place, these vulnerable spots, are the exact place where the Lord can meet us and touch our heart. If you will, the wounds of our heart are kind of, excuse me, let me rephrase the analogy. If if the grace of God falls like rain, the wounds of your heart are the holes that collect and form the puddles. It's going to be in those wounds, those weaknesses, those vulnerabilities, where the grace of God mostly confines itself, where the grace of God is looking to penetrate. But if he doesn't have access to that, he he won't be able to heal that. And on one hand, we're like, oh, well, you know, I'm going to be tough and I'm going to you know, keep this all to myself. Well, the sad part about that is the devil knows where those wounds are and he is going to poke and prod and ruin them and drive you crazy for the rest of your life unless you properly deal with them. And so the point that Father Gallagher makes is if you have a weak point in your heart, in your life, in your soul, strengthen it. Strengthen it. Go there. Do not let the devil make you keep it secret, because as he's making you keep it secret, he's allowing it to rot away and eat at yourself. Once and so this is the principle: of know thyself. Once you name it, you can grow. Only once you name it. Matt Talbot was an Irish, basically an Irish saint in the 1800s, if I'm correct, and he realized that he could not avoid alcohol if he gave his body everything else it wanted. And so he builds his entire spiritual life on building up his weakest point by fighting his alcoholism. And he committed, he did, not committed, he did penances that would make us cringe. He would never ever touch a suite. He would sleep on the floor. He used a rock as a pillow, all kinds of things in order to train his body to where he would not want to go back and turn and fall into his alcoholism. And because of that, I think his cause is, at, he's up for canonization if he's not already a saint The other thing to look at it is and the other good reason to focus on these weak points is that if we're growing in one virtue we're growing in all. If we're growing in one virtue we're growing in in all of the virtues. Because virtue is not an isolated event. Virtue is like a tent. If you raise up one point of the tent the rest of the tarp comes with it. Alright? It might be a little bit lower than that one point but it's still coming with it. So raise up if you raise up one virtue, the whole soul benefits. So it is definitely an encouragement. The other thing to note, any job worth doing is worth doing poorly. Come and fail at prayer. Fail at prayer, fail at prayer, fail at prayer. Come and pray and pray and pray and go to these vulnerable spots and let the Lord strengthen you and allow yourself to grow in virtue. And then you can resist the devil as he seeks to attack you in your weakest point like a robber, and a thief. Those are the 14 rules of discernment in accordance with St. Ignatius of Loyola. Before we move on, I think we can take, we really can't, but but we can take one or two questions. Does anybody have a burning question that you think Maybe something that I said that needs clarification, maybe something that need that's that might have been a little confusing. All right. Good. So that is that if like I said, well if i after after this session, I will be out in the plaza, and if you would like to talk with me or ask any other questions, you're more than welcome to. These are the fourteen rules. Excellent, excellent, excellent pieces of work. Really and truly some of the greatest writings in the history of the church, some of the most practical writings in the history of the church, Something that we could all use. But the problem with these rules is that very often you and I learn them, and then we forget about them. Spiritual amnesia ends up setting in, and what ends up happening is we end up failing to, to really implement them in our day-to-day life. And so what I want to do is, and I handed this out, there, there should be, if you haven't gotten these, these were on the table, there's some, some handouts, some notes of basically three this is what it is, three ways in which you can utilize the rules in your day-to-day life. The first way, and I think the most important way, is the examine prayer. The examine is a very, very interesting prayer. It's one of those things that has fallen in favor and out of favor within the history of the church. Namely, especially the Jesuit order. The Jesuit order was not wild about the examined prayer up until about 30 years ago whenever Father George Ashenbrenner wrote an article calling it, instead of the examine, called the, the Examine of Consciousness. Basically, recognizing what, instead of just what my sins were, recognizing where my heart was throughout the day. Where was my soul? Was it here? Was it there? What was going on? And so I give you the basic format of how to do a proper exam. St. Ignatius said that the examine, that is, going back over your day, is one of the most important prayers you can pray. In fact, he said that if you, he told us Jesuits who were going on mission to North America and Japan and India, he said if your breviary ever gets stolen or if your mass kit ever gets stolen and you can't say mass and you can't pray your rosary and you can't pray the breviary, if you do your examine... You will get all the graces that were intended for you to receive at the Mass that you were to pray, at the, at the Rosary you were to pray, and at the breviary you were to pray. The Examined Prayer is exceptionally important. Basically, boil down, Miss Mass, Miss Rosary, Miss, miss uh, the breviary. Not to say you should ever, any priest should ever do that, and he wasn't saying that either. But never ever miss your Examined. Examined Prayer is the pinnacle point of the Christian life, and I agree with him totally. And here's how to do an examine. I gave you five steps. The first step is begin by placing yourself in the presence of God. The biggest mistake that we could possibly make whenever it comes to the examine is use it as a tool to make us perfect. Use it as a tool to make us better. And just use it as a tool to kind of feed our perfectionism. No, the examine is meant to be done with God. It's not not something we say to ourselves. It's a prayer. It's something to be included with him. And so the best way to begin is begin by taking 10 seconds or so, slowing down and putting yourself in the presence of God. The next step is to go over your blessings. Go over the blessings of the day. Personally, I force myself to come up with five blessings. And these blessings, on the one hand, are can be non-spiritual consolations. They can. But ideally, these blessings should be spiritual consolations. They should be spiritual consolations. Where was the Lord leading me? Where was my heart fully alive? Where did I feel most at peace in the day? And it could, and, and you know, like I said, non-spiritual consolation can springboard into spiritual consolation. But it's just a matter of recognizing we are a blessed people. St. Ignatius said. This part, going over your blessings, is the most important part of the examine. The most important part of the examine. Going over your blessings. The next step after we've gotten our blessings is to review. Start at the beginning of the day and go over the spiritual movements of your soul soul, until the present moment. Start at the beginning of the day and go over how the Lord was working in your soul up until the present moment. And the best way to do this is ask yourself when the Lord was speaking to you. When was the Lord speaking to me? Lord, and you could ask him, Lord, when were you speaking to me? And just allow him to guide your thought process. Whenever I was waking you up in the morning, I was speaking to you. I was inviting you to pray. Whenever you were, whenever you were going to eat, I was inviting you to pray. You know, these, these different things. The next thing to ask is, well, did I accept that invitation or did I reject it? Did I accept it or did I reject it? The Lord's inviting me to pray and inviting me to rejoice in him whenever I wake up in the morning. Do I accept that or reject it? Do I say thank you, Lord, or do I just say, I need more coffee and more sleep? You know, what is the what is the difference? Like what is what is our reaction? Also ask, when was the enemy present? When was he trying to derail me? When was Satan trying to work on me? And then ask yourself, did I accept that invitation to desolation? Or did I reject him? And if I did accept him, when did I walk out of the desolation? When did I try and reject that and go to consolation? The reason why this is... And then, sorry, I'm almost done. Then I'll explain a little bit more. Getting ahead of myself. So that's the, that's, that's the review section. This is all about tangibly what happened in your day. Forgiveness. Ask God for the forgiveness for the times when you rejected his promptings and at the times when you accepted the evil spirit's temptations. Ask God's forgiveness for the times when you rejected his promptings and the times when you accepted the evil spirit's temptations. Personally, for forgiveness, I'll write down all this in my journal. Blessings, review, because if I don't, I'm going to just go add on, you know, on, in, in my head and I just, I'll just lose all focus, which I usually do in general anyway. So I know. Right. And so I, but, but for the forgiveness, I'll write down certain sins and for confession, whenever I go, I just open up my journal and I actually have the sins that I can name as opposed to trying to dig up a lot of stuff. I'll actually see like, oh yeah, on this day I did this, on this day I did this. And so it makes, takes a lot of stress out of the, out of confession. Also, resolve. After you've asked God's forgiveness, you resolve what what you can do different going forward so you can remain in a place where you can be found. That's kind of the key to this examine, is this examine keeps you in a place where you can find Jesus, and here's why I say that. The spiritual life is a path. The Lord tells us it is straight, it is narrow. But the difficulty is very often... The dip, well, the difficulty is it, we don't have... It's not very well lit. The only light we have is the light of faith. And the light of faith is not a spotlight. It's a candle. And it just, take, it just guides us to the next step. And so it's very easy to confuse that light of faith with the false light of Satan. St. Paul mentions the false light and the false constellations of the evil spirit. And so what can happen sometimes is we can end up following the false light, and taking steps toward that direction. And what can happen sometimes, if we're not doing the examine, we can walk along that direction a very, very long way before we realize we are off the beaten path, before we realize we are off the straight and narrow. That's why the examine is so important. The examine is where we stop and go, oh, I walked this way today, let me correct that, let me, let me get, get back to the straight and narrow. Well, I went this direction, well, let me, let me get back to the straight and narrow here and there. It's a recognition that our path to God is not to be crooked, it's to be straight. But asking God to help us, guide us along that straight path. And, then, and if you do it every day, the less you'll go down that path for long periods of time. It's an incredible blessing. That's why the, the, the examine is so, so important. It's so that you don't find yourself in a very desolate and lonely place because of Satan's deceptions. So that's the first thing, the examined the examine prayer. The second thing is to review these rules. These rules are very easily forgotten. Let's face it. One of the best ways the evil spirit influences you and me is by helping us to forget. By distracting us from the, from the eternal truths we learn, ultimately leading to our spiritual amnesia. He's trying to get us to forget everything we're learning here at this mission as we speak. This is especially true of the rules. So here's, I gave you three ideas on how to prevent this. One, and I think this is probably the easiest, is just put the rules in a prominent place in your room or put the rules somewhere on your desk or something to where you actually like recognize and see where they are. And so you can go over them. Number two, make them your desktop wallpaper on your computer. And number three, you know, this is really meant for I was hoping I would have like a really nerdy guy in, 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 the, in, the, in the, the crowd that, that could do this. But make an app that periodically t- sends you the different rule via email, text message, or alert within the app. Ooh, that was loud. And share it with me because I need that. But that would, I think that would be most ideal. Something to remind us of these rules. Something to remind us that, look, we're on a spiritual journey. And we're not just, we're not just along for the ride. We can make decisions. We can keep watch, we can accept the good spirit and reject the bad. So that's, that's the other way, the other th- and the reason why this is really so important, to read the rules and go over them, is there's no simpler way to tell if you're in desolation or not than by reading the rules. It's straightforward. If you read the rules and think this makes no sense, this doesn't apply to me, this is ridiculous, guess what, you're in desolation. Right? You're not accepting the reality that you're not in a good spot. But if you read the rules and you're like, this makes total sense, I get it. You're in consolation. And so you got to, reg- so the rules, and, that's, and, I, and I've seen this in my life, they told us this seven years ago whenever I first learned this, and it's true as can be. If the rules don't make sense, you're in a bad spot. Get out of it. Get out of there. And how do you do that? Rule six, prayer, meditation, proper examination, and a suitable penance. But, you got to name it first. got to name the fact that you are in desolation. And the third and final point, which is ultimately why I think a lot of you came to this parish mission, making a decision. How do we use these rules in our day-to-day life to make a decision? Make a big, especially big decision. Change my major, continue with this relationship, switch jobs, have more children, whatnot, whatever that might be. And I'm going to give you a few, I think this is five, five points in which you can kind of help make those decisions. The first thing is never, ever, ever, ever make a decision, a major decision in spiritual desolation. Never make a major decision in spiritual desolation. And here's why. In desolation, the thoughts you are experiencing are contrary to the thoughts that come to you in consolation. And in consolation, the thoughts that are coming to you are coming to you from the Lord. It's the Lord affirming you. It's the Lord building you up. It's the Lord letting you know that he loves you. It's the Lord. The thoughts coming to you in desolation are not thoughts from God. They're thoughts from the enemy. Which means that if you're making decisions based off of these thoughts, you're following the devil as your counselor. And you're going to regret your decision. You're going to regret it. Because he's not leading you to the truth. He's only leading you to your destruction. And that's okay. Like, look, Job heard Satan as his counselor for a while. And that's, that's just how it goes. I mean, sometimes that happens. And, you know, that's why we have the 14 rules to reject desolation, to reject this, this stuff. So if you, do find yourself in, if you do find yourself with a major decision and you're in spiritual desolation, go over the 14 rules and take, your step, take proper steps out of it so that you can be of right mind to make the decision. The other point to recognize is you can be in non-spiritual desolation and in spiritual consolation. Non-spiritual desolation and spiritual consolation. There was a um, North American martyr named St. John de Brabuff, also known as St. John of God. Like, just a, He's a very, very big deal. I, say he was a, I believe he was called St. John of God, but either way, he was a very, very holy man. Mystic even from whenever he was alive. So that people very, very, very much revered him. And rightly so, if you read his readings. But he wrote a letter to the Jesuits in France. And basically saying, if you want to come, here's what you need to expect. And he just went on a litany of awful sufferings. He said, don't expect canoe rides to be all day long in a squatting position. Expect to almost die 50 times a day. Whenever winters come, expect three feet of snow for six months. Don't expect this to see the light of the day. Expect Indians. next. No, excuse me, they didn't call them Indians. They called them something worse. They called them savages. Expect savages to not appreciate what you have to say. Expect them to take all the food that you cook. Expect them to curse you nonstop expect them to be angry at your presence expect them to totally neglect you and reject you expect them to and expect them to to never ever be quiet to always be pe- people of making noise expect never to be able to pray your breviary in peace expect expect the fact that you probably won't be able to say mass until either late at night or early 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 in the morning or maybe even no mass at all because of the travel expect that whenever winter comes and you're all huddled together in a tent And they're they're lighting fire to to keep the the tent warm. Expect to have to keep your your face three inches from the ground so you can breathe and not inhale smoke. Expect, too, that ultimately you will be hated by the shaman that also walk with these Indians. They will absolutely persecute you. And what he said ultimately, though, Was that if you hear all of this stuff, if you hear all of these miserable experiences, and you're okay with that, then come to Canada. I mean, come on, it's going to be the best experience of your life. You will love every second of it. I mean, that's a guy who's experiencing non-spiritual desolation, but is in deep consolation. You can tell that as he's writing all of these miserable experiences, that there's a deep, undying loyalty to these people. That he wants nothing more than to see them saved. That he wants nothing more than to see them live. Even though they don't care about him. Another note that he made about, about the, the, the Native Americans is that they did not care if you were sick. If you're sick, whatever, we'll lead you, leave you to the cold and you'll die less, less, one less body we have to feed. But he said, come, if that does not deter you, come. You can be in non-spiritual desolation and experience deep, deep, deep spiritual consolation. That is how, basically, that's how the saints become saints. Maximilian Kolbe, St. Isaac Jogues, St. Saint, Saint John Paul the Great, an incredible faithful man, even though he was deeply, deeply sick for a long period of time. You can be in non-spirit, non-spiritual desolation and spiritual consolation. The third point, spiritual desolation is not your cross. I cannot tell you how important this is. Spiritual desolation is not your cross. Spiritual desolation is something you can receive, something you can take, but it is not Luke 9, 23. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny himself, take up their cross, and daily follow me. That's not, that is not what Jesus is saying. He's not saying you should be joyless and miserable your entire life. No. That is not a saintly reaction, all right? Spiritual desolation is not your cross. Suffering is a cross. Class is a cross. School, cross. Work, cross. Sometimes family members, cross. But your spiritual constant desolation is not a cross. It's something that you do not need to take up and walk with for the rest of your life. It's something to be rejected right there and on the spot. Do not hold on to it, all right? And if you, the sooner you can get rid of it, the faster you can make a good decision. I find this to be very, very problematic. In fact, one of my friends almost became a priest based off of that wisdom. He says, I'm not enjoying this. This is difficult, but hey, take up your cross and follow me. No. No. If you find no joy in this, you will not make a very good priest. And he didn't. And he's a, one heck of a man right now. He's, he's, he's done really awesome things for the church. So spiritual desolation is not your cross. Your cross is suffering in, in other ways. Your decision, number four, has to be reasonable. You can do all the discernment you want. You can be in a spiritual consolation. You can be high as a kite. But if your decision is not reasonable, it's not a good decision. And I'll give you just a few criteria for what is reasonable. First, a reasonable decision has to be in accord with church teaching. If it's not in accord with church teaching... Guess what, pal? It ain't reasonable. All right? It is not what God wants you to do. It has to be in a corporate church teaching. Second, for something to be reasonable, it has to be achievable. It has to be something that you can actually do with the grace of God, but remember, remembering that grace and nature work together. It has to be achievable. And third, it has to lead you closer to heaven. Good example, St. Ignatius, discerning the woman versus religious life. The woman... I mean, you can, you, can, you can pursue a woman, and that's perfectly fine. That's in accord with church teaching. Arguably, it could possibly have been achievable. It didn't seem very achievable, but for him at that moment, would it have led him closer to heaven? No. For him, I'm not saying this is across the board at all, but for him, it left him dry, desolate, and empty, which means that would not have helped him. The fourth and final, sorry, the fifth and final way to make a, a good decision is to do it with a competent spiritual director or mentor or somebody with a, 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 just a good sense of, of what's right and what's wrong. The reason why I say that and the reason why it's so important to have a spiritual director for this is because these rules were never, ever, ever meant to be done alone. If you, These rules were always meant to be with somebody else. And the real reason for that is because you and I do not have perfect self-reflection. We're just not good at knowing where we're, where, like, just knowing what the state of our soul is. A wise, wise Jesuit told me once that the Lord meets us right where we're at, right at that exact spot. The problem is most of us don't know where the hell we are. And that's what a spiritual director is for, to remind us where we are, to show us where our exact, exact state is. Because we don't see ourselves in real life. We operate on a, on a first-person basis. So we don't always know. The other thing too is we can very easily tend to be trapped in our own heads and fail to see the distinction between the two spirits and to know whether we are in consolation or desolation. So verbalizing our thoughts, verbalizing our feelings, verbalizing our di- desires is critical because it helps us understand if we're even in even a place to make a good decision. Guys, that's the discernment of spirits. In a nutshell. It was very brief, but... I think, it's, I think it's a good start. If you want to live the discerning spiritual life, you have what it takes right now. Just, you have your principles, the, the nine principles I gave you. You have your 14 rules. And you have a few ways to implement the discernment of spirits. So guys, I'm going to pray for you. I'm going to pray that this benefits you. I pray that you can continue to lead the life that, that God is calling you to live. And ultimately, stay in consolation and become great saints. We don't need more sad Catholics. We don't need desolate Catholics. We need happy Catholics. We need Catholics that invite people to the church. And this, these fourteen rules in this way, is just a primary, beautiful way in which you and I can be transformed, and to do that, and to know the love of Christ. Please stand.